Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, April 21st, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albany's PW senior writer joins me now. He and I are both covering the London Book Fair. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So the London Book Fair opened here on Tuesday for a three-day run at Olympia. What are your impressions and what stood out as highlights? Yeah, well, you know, it almost felt like a normal book fair again, right? There was a lot of energy among the attendees. The, the show floor was bustling and the program was pretty good. You know, it certainly felt like life was starting to get back to some semblance of normal. Um, as for some initial observations, the Americans were back here in London, although I think in much smaller numbers. The major publishers all had their booths, but of course, they all have UK counterparts. And while I did see a handful of Americans there, I'm told they were there in bigger numbers than I saw. And the floor and the program just seemed a bit more European, a bit more British than in past years. Usually you would run into more Americans. But I think that's to be expected coming out of the pandemic. I think the Americans are just trying to figure out where they're going to land on the London spectrum going forward. But this year's fair was certainly a step in the right direction over last year's tentative effort. Attendees that I spoke to were delighted to be back, delighted to see their old friends and business partners again. And, you know, I think that there's a lot that the trade fair brings to the equation. Um, you know, I, I sat down, I just met a printer in our booth and we talked about printing issues. That's something I never would have set up a Zoom call for, but that kind of spontaneous interaction was really valuable and I think highlights the benefit of coming to these events. And I think that this year's London Book Fair really sets up some higher expectations uh, for next year. Now, there's still some hiccups that are going to need to be addressed. Uh, Olympia and the London Book Fair, you know, there's a lack of good Wi-Fi here, which was described to me by more than one attendee as a scandal. Uh, and the state of Olympia, which we knew was getting a facelift, but it turned out to be a full-on construction site. You know, During one panel on Thursday, the pounding on the roof was so loud that the speaker had to stop and wait. But, you know, that's to be expected. We're coming out of like uh, an interesting last few years. But my first impression is that the London Book Fair 2023 was a vibrant event and another solid step towards some sense of normalcy returning to the book business. You covered HarperCollins CEO Brian Murray's keynote appearance in conversation with David Roche, an industry consultant in the UK. What did you think of Murray's observations? And did you see anything lacking in his remarks? Yeah, so Brian Murray is always good copy, I think. The most notable stuff, I think, is that you know Brian Murray confirmed what we've been talking about on this show for a while now, and that's that after two unprecedented years of growth during the pandemic, the book business is falling back to earth. Um, but Murray did sound an optimistic note saying that there were positive signs out there for the industry. He said it was like the publishing industry had a pandemic party and 2022 was the hangover and we're just starting to get through the hangover now. Uh, in terms of challenges, Murray spoke of softening consumer spending patterns that are concerning to him um, and unprecedented infl inflation rates, uh, the effects of which are rippling through the entire business from the supply chain to retail. He also spoke of the leadership challenges stemming from the pandemic, which he called uh, a shock to the system and a shock that's still being felt. You know, As for what he didn't really talk about, one of them was a shock to the system for HarperCollins, and that, of, of course, is the strike that they went through. They, 250 unionized workers at HarperCollins were on the picket line for three months as a new contract was ratified in February of this year. But when he was asked what lessons the strike held for the publishing industry, Murray kind of demurred. He spoke in very general terms about the importance of communication. Now, 
that was not unexpected, I suppose. But I do think it was a little disappointing, and he certainly could have used this platform at the London Book Fair to talk about publishing workers and to talk about what publishing workers have been through over the last few years and maybe to sort of mend fences with some of the HarperCollins workforce. Marie even used the question to sort of praise how HarperCollins employees rose to the challenge of the pandemic. But then he kind of went into something that I think is also a sort of contentious issue, which is remote work. Uh, Murray said that remote work is basically, in his words, not sustainable in the long term, uh, at least not for creative businesses like the publishing industry. And he cited uh, Bob Iger at Disney and Disney's recent decision to require workers to be back in the office four days per week. And it sure sounded like he was, you know, intimating that that is where Harper is heading. And look, I don't think he's entirely wrong, right? Uh, though many workers have no desire to work, return to the office four days a week, I have to say if the end result of the pandemic is that we go from a five-day work week to four days in the office permanently as a baseline with a flexibility of remote work as needed still there, I think that's kind of a win going forward. But indeed, you know, going back to the hangover Murray spoke of, you know, echoing what we've talked about on this show, I think he's spot on in noting that the industry has settled in at a level that is at least well above where we were before the pandemic, right? Murray said that normal growth in the industry is 1% to 3% annually. We had this unbelievable ride, he said, and now we're going to go back to where we were before, 1% to 3%. And if we're settling in at a level that's way above the pandemic and still having growth of 1% to 3%, well, that's not too bad. Brian Murray also addressed the role of AI in publishing, a theme that was very much a major topic at the fair, given the rise of chatbots such as ChatGPT. Yeah, I found it really interesting how curious and I'd say even panicked some of the business seemed to be about generative AI, which Murray called in his talk fascinating and scary. You can read my report on PW to get a little more insight into what he thinks about what's going on with AI and generative uh, AI especially. Uh, and it is fascinating and scary, but there was really a general sense that AI was going to be a real disruptor in the publishing industry and fast. And I have to say, it bears out something that's been on my mind for years, which is that, you know, the threat to publishers, it never really, to me, felt like it was going to come from the product side, right? Ebooks or PDFs or pirated PDFs even, or Google scanning books, for example. But like the real change was really going to come from the creative side when the tools really started to impact how books were written. And indeed, that's exactly what everyone seems to be spooked about now, that machines are going to be writing books. And, you know, that that's a real threat to copyright and creativity. And for sure, it is absolutely an issue. There needs to be, as one panelist said, rules to the road for how that goes forward. Um, and, you know, what this all means for creation, you know, I'm less worried about. We're always going to have a creative industry. Uh, but the topic, no doubt, was a huge one around the fair. Surprisingly so, I have to say. The other thing about AI that really came up, and Murray addressed this too, was the immediate impact it's going to have on workflow and on publishing workers who, you know, sort of like factory workers and line workers in other industries could see their jobs impacted and in some cases even eliminated. And that is something I think publishing really has to wrestle with now in the short term. Because, look, it's one thing to say that AI can't write books and it can't design books. People depend on writing books for a living. But then at the same time, you can't say, oh, but AI can design and write my catalogs because I'll remind you, people write those catalogs too. So, you know, my feeling is that, you know, AI could do the work of a CEO too, <laughs> I'm just saying. But if we're going to talk about what AI can do in the future, we really have to have a more humane approach to it, I think. And we need to start discussing it more in those in that way. At the same time, I attended another panel 
with the CTOs of four major publishers, British CTOs, I should say, who spoke much more soberly about this period of, quote, and I'll quote them here, risk and opportunity that we face with AI. And there is a great opportunity here for technology to make people's work and lives better. Uh, people being the key word there. Anyway, the talk here was that this conversation about AI was going to be even more intense by the time Frankfurt rolls around. That is, of course, if the AI chaos GPT hasn't figured out by then how to end the world. And if you don't know what chaos GPT is, Google it. It's really quite fascinating. Well, I will have to do that, Andrew, but after the show. Brian Murray also revealed he doesn't think the door has closed on HarperCollins acquiring Simon & Schuster, even though Penguin Random House's own bid was shot down by Judge Florence Pan in federal court last year. Yeah, again, as I've been saying, it's inconceivable to me that HarperCollins, which would love to have Simon & Schuster, is not at least going to kick the tires and take a shot at this, right? You know, I know a lot of industry pundits seem to believe that Judge Pan's scathing ruling denying Penguin Random House's acquisition of Simon & Schuster basically closed the door on another big five suitor for the publisher. But Marie said he believed the door was not closed. And I tend to agree. You know, he noted that toward the end of Judge Pan's ruling, she intimated that she understood that it could very likely be another publisher trying to acquire Simon & Schuster. And Murray says he reads that as a sign that the door is open. It's definitely harder, he said. The bar is higher and it would take time, but it's not impossible. And look, all of that is true. But I will say this. There is a roadmap now for the next suitor, if it is to be another Big Five publisher, to go after Simon & Schuster. In Pan's decision, she pointed out where all the pain points are. And look, no other Big Five publisher is as big as Penguin Random House. So the math is going to be much different in any future acquisition attempt. And lawyers have told me from the start that this is a different deal with any other Big Five publisher but Penguin Random House. The big challenge, of course, going forward is whether Viacom wants to get rid of Simon & Schuster so fast that they don't want to deal with the potential headache of crafting a deal with another major publisher that would go through intense regulatory scrutiny by the government. But look, what's the hurry? Why not, right? Simon & Schuster had a stratospheric year last year, right? They're making great money. Uh, It's not a drain on Viacom in any way. It's merely a strategic issue that's forcing the sale there. So look, if you're making good money with Simon & Schuster, Time is money. You have the time to get this right. Why take a lower bid just because you're worried about what the government might do if you can, you know, get a higher bid from another publisher and you're making money in the short term? So, you know, I think the other question, too, is whether or not, you know, HarperCollins would be in this position if they hadn't lowballed their first bid, which raises the question whether or not they really have the capital to make this deal happen. Anyway, fascinating stuff. The door is not closed on HarperCollins trying to acquire Simon & Schuster, and we'll certainly be paying attention on how that all shakes out in the coming months. PEN America is out this week with a new report that shows book bans fueled by state legislation in many cases continue to accumulate. Yeah, you know, it was interesting to hear to talk to the Brits in London because they all think we're losing our minds, and we kind of are back here in the U.S., and it was interesting, too, that this question about book bans and, you know, you know, educational gag orders and legislation in the States was not addressed by Brian Murray from the stage at the London Book Fair, because for my money, that's a hell of a lot more pressing issue than AI is, right? 
Anyway, as you know, PEN America released a new report this week that documents this alarming surge in state legislation across the country and how it's driving a spike in book bans in schools and libraries. The report is called Banned in the USA, State Laws Supercharge Book Suppression in Schools, and it expands on two previous PEN America reports that we've talked about on this show, tracking the intensifying wave of book bans and laws that are basically aimed at limiting access to books for students in schools and libraries. And what this report basically calls out is that since July 2021, when PEN America began tracking public school book bans, the organization has since recorded more than 4,000 book bans through December 2022. And that's just a you know, a small sample of what's really going on out there, the report notes. Uh, it includes 1,477 individual book bans affecting 874 unique titles during the first half of the 2022-2023 school year. That's a 28% increase over the previous six months. But it also points out that in some states like Florida, you have what they call wholesale book bans, where schools are like pulling entire classroom libraries because they're trying to figure out what book might pass muster uh, against the new standards set out by the state. And the driver of all this, as Penn America points out, really is this legislation in the states that's ostensibly aimed at keeping allegedly harmful materials from kids. But we all know it's really a politically motivated backlash to having more diverse voices in schools and libraries. I'll quote Susan no Suzanne Nossel here, who's the chief executive of Penn America. Uh, the heavy-handed tactics of state legislators are mandating book bans, plain and simple, Nossel said. Um, some politicians, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, she went on, have tried to dismiss the rise in book bans as a hoax. But their constituents and supporters are not fooled. The numbers don't lie. They reveal a relentless crusade to restrict children's freedom to read. And I have to say that's right. And you can read our story and you can access the full report on the PW site right now. But back in the United States, we're having a real issue with book bans. And I would imagine that the rest of the world will be hearing and learning more about this in the months to come. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me today on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, when National Public Radio announced in late February the cancellation of several broadcasts and podcast programs, as well as the layoffs of 10% of its national staff, the network CEO blamed a budget deficit of $30 million. The latest NPR cuts were the deepest the network has made since the Great Recession in 2008. Leaving journalism to its fate in the marketplace irresponsibly puts dollars before democracy, says Victor Picard, co-director of the Media Inequality and Change Center at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. It's an interesting disconnect because even though, again, history shows us that any sort of social movement across the political spectrum must rely on a functional press system, you know, to make sure that people get news information about their about their particular issues. And yet, there's often this kind of knee jerk reaction against the media, um, with uh, without acknowledging that we we need the media for whatever our issue is. If we want to confront the climate crisis, if we want to confront mass incarceration, every social movement, whether we're talking about the abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement, they all realize that they must have a viable media system at their disposal or their movement would not get very far. Dollars or democracy. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. 
You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. 